This episode is sponsored by a donor to Global Wellness Institute, or GWI. GWI is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to empower wellness worldwide by educating the public and private sectors about preventative health and wellness. GWI's research, programs, and initiatives have been instrumental in the growth of the $4.5 trillion U.S. dollar wellness economy and in uniting the health and wellness industries. Visit globalwellnessinstitute.org. On this 100th episode, we have Benjamin Hedrick. Benjamin was born on the East Coast, and after spending elementary school in the state of Washington, he came back to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Certain he was going to be a lawyer, he attended the Penn State Honors Program and prepped to enter law school. He opted to put it on hold and go to Japan to teach English for a year. That wound up being a multi-year teaching and travel experience. He returned to the U.S. to earn a master's degree in teaching at Duke University. He taught for a number of years prior to earning a doctorate at Stanford in math education. He is now responsible for advanced placement test design. Ben, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. It seems good to be here. I have really been looking forward to this for quite some time, and I have designated this conversation specifically to be the 100th episode of the Achieve podcast because there is no dearer friend on the planet than you. Well, you were the best man at my wedding, so the feeling is mutual. <laughs> well, ditto, quite frankly. But no, it's phenomenal to have you on. Um, uh, you're the probably one of the few people on the planet for whom I could um, sit in your seat and tell the story. Uh, and I know you could do that for me. And that's um, really just a phenomenal relationship to be able to to have uh, with another being on the planet. So um, again, this is just a, a great, great privilege. Um, our paths crossed when uh, you moved to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I was born in uh, Smithtown, Long Island. So we did uh, right. Long Island, Syracuse, um, somewhere in Washington State, I don't remember, then Linwood, which is where I did most of elementary school. Gotcha. There is uh, a great share um, when we were both in high school that uh, we'd like to get into. But uh, I also want to give the background that um, probably one of the most magical things about our relationship is that we were each other's intellectual equals but also stimulants we pushed each other further and further and it wasn't in a way that was um evil or uh, enemy like you know you always hear about the rival but uh, we just pushed each other because we were just curious we're like oh what's that about let's go figure that out like hey come on join me on this let's go sort this out and so there were so many things we did together. Um, to add a story to that one, just to make fun of you a little bit. Oh dear. Um, I actually have a very good memory. And it, it was, you're, you're very true that it was um, a surprisingly friendly collaboration that we, we pushed each other, but it never was something where we were competing as in we have to be better. It was competing to make both of us better. And I think it was in seventh grade, we had just taken a test. I think it was Mr. Ross's class or something like that. And as usual, you had beaten me because you were always doing at least a couple points better. But I think it was something like you got a 98 and I got a 96. And you were, of course, fretting about the two points that you missed. And I didn't really care as much. And you're like, you know, I studied for like five, six hours for this test. I'm like, I studied for like 20 minutes. And you're like, oh, my God, you're so much smarter than I am. I said, well, I'm smarter. I just I didn't feel like studying that much. I, you know what? You don't. The next test, I remember this clearly, that you decided that you were not going to do the same thing and you studied, you know, like the same 20, 30 minutes. And that time you beat me like four or five points. You actually got better because you were overstudying. And it, it totally freed the things up. And I remember it's like, oh man, you took my own idea and beat me again with it. Well, that's a beautiful share. Thank you for uh, bringing that up. Um, 
Well, and, and that's kind of a theme of where I was going to go. But uh, before I bring that topic up, I just would like to highlight that I could never, ever, ever catch you in math. You were just always uh, excelling well beyond anything that, that I could do there. And I've always admired that and respected it. Thank you. Um, I had math and you had everything else. So that's a... <laughs> Thanks for rubbing that out. Well, you, you took that math caliber to an amazing degree and I just kind of petered out. Um, but... Uh, what comes to mind is this history competition that you and I did, and we're not going to dwell on these early adolescent years too much, but we um, were part of a larger group in the end of middle school that um, had done fairly well. We placed at regionals, we got first in the state, and then we went to the national level. We came back just the two of us, you and I, and that sounds very romantic as it intentionally should because who else would be singing opera to fellow classmates out of a window when we're on a school trip to, to Penn State. And I know that's why you fell in love with that place and wanted to get your degree from there. But well. uh, here we are. And, um, you know, this, this is somewhat equivalent to, to athletes, I feel, and their performances and, and the pressure that that's kind of felt because when we came back in that second year there's the two of us we we got first in the region we got first at state and there was a lot of there were a lot of eyes on us for um for nationals and we, we had just put so much time and effort of into this there was a lot of mm -hmm. our year that had been spent um and so there's a lot of pressure a lot of it self-inflicted um as well but uh and i think we were, we began to get on each other's nerves and oh, uh of course. Yeah. <laughs> we, were, we, we got a little sick of each other but then there was a magical moment the day of our performance which made all the difference uh and i'm going to stop talking there and let you describe what precisely happened I'm not sure if I remember what precisely happened. <laughs> in my mind, it's Animish throwing up in his basement, but besides that. Well, there was that. Um, and uh, But what I was thinking of was the, um, we're at the University of Maryland, where the national competition is taking place. And uh, we kind of did a dress rehearsal and we were getting ready for the evening runoff competition because uh, we had already in the two days prior done the um, uh, selections in the room and then the top two from each room went to this finals cat, uh, sort of runoff uh, uh, section. And um, we were in the, the shower stalls. <laughs> yep. Okay. I'm going to pass to you. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'd tell this as well as you would, but uh, I, I remember that there were you know, mouthfuls of water that started going across the, the stalls at that point. And just you know, stupidity. Sometimes that's what you need in, in moments of tension is just the, the levity, the stupidity. Just something where you, you get the giggles and you know it's not appropriate. And that just makes it even better that you can't stop laughing because it's just so dumb. Well, it's uh, uh, exactly right. Uh, and for me, what that meant was just uh, a reminder of what brought us together and why we were there to begin with. It was this deep, profound friendship. And then, um, you know, I've, I've read a lot later uh, since then or current times about this concept of flow and being in flow and i remember that final performance as actually an out-of-body experience being like we're just like the words were just coming out and like you were nailing it i was nailing it and it just felt so pure and amazing and i just had this sense of like watching it from outside as opposed to living it or having any kind of anxiety about are we going to 
drop lines? Are we going to be okay? Is our inflection okay? Are we enunciating enough? It just all came brilliantly together. But had we not had that um, banter, that experience, that breaking of the tension in the showers, we probably, we might have flubbed something because um, we didn't remember, we, we wouldn't have recalled or brought to attention like what was bringing us to that point. And yeah. I think that was the reason why. And then for the first time, like when we left that stage, these teachers from all parts of the US came to us and were congratulating us and saying, and thanking us. That was the most marvelous thing, like saying gratitude, like, my God, you guys like me took history and made it alive and, and, and we're, we're thoughtful in your analysis and cerebral and academic. And this is what history is. This kind of analysis is finding these connections or just really praising our research and our performance. And, um, it was just a magical moment and a magical time. And uh, I think we were both in flow uh, when we did that, which was phenomenal. And um, that was the key part. And, and actually the beauty of it was we didn't care at that point what happened because we knew we had just, we gave it our best. That was the, the most amazing performance we could have delivered. And um, we ended up winning first in the country, which was phenomenal. And I still cherish and remember that. But um, that experience and that lesson, um, as it also is tied to Mr. Ross's exams and the easing up of tension, like that's just beautifully themed. And I love how we were both thinking along those lines and kind of wanted to bring that to this conversation. I think it's, it's one of the things, and you know this better than most people, and that if you're fortunate enough to get into something that you care about, that you excel at, that you enjoy, you know, everything has ups and downs. There are going to be moments where you're living the dream, everything is fun. And there are moments where, you know, you and your best friend want to kill each other because you've just spent too much time together. It's not that you love the project any less. It's not that you love the person any less. It's just, you know, sometimes people start hitting their breaking points and it's a natural aspect of life, whether it's, a history day competition, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a team you're working with at work who is trying to accomplish the impossible, lacking resources or time or whatever it is. And there are going to be those moments. And sometimes someone just has to take one for the team. You have to be <laughs> confident enough to say, I can be the idiot right now. <laughs> Laugh at me. Just let it all go so we can go back to doing the things that we know we all do well. Brilliantly said. Well done. Well, the main focus of this was meant to be you. Um, <laughs> clearly, I've made it about us uh, thus far. Um, what I'd like to focus on is your orientation as you went through high school and then college. You had uh, a very mature view on what you wanted to achieve and what you wanted to accomplish. And um, I remember in all those nights that I spent doing sleepovers at your home, um, you saying something that really stuck with me that um, you were really keen on being remembered. And, and you talked about how uh, your dad, when he was in college, would share stories of how he had a nickname of the Phantom because things would go missing or... Um, I can't talk about on this podcast, but yeah. <laughs> Just say things would go missing. That seems like a good euphemism. That, that was meant to be a comma in my initial, original take. And then I just decided that, yeah, the second and third clause after that initial comma are probably inappropriate. Um, things would go missing. Um, but that was meaningful to you. And, um, you know, that was obviously something that didn't register with me. But um, you've kind of lived your life focusing on experience and thinking about what would be the most valuable experiences you could have. And I've always admired that about you. Um, and so, you know, just to fill in the history, uh, you you went to Penn State honors program, 
um, after that, you wanted to see the world and you participated in the JET program. So tell us about that decision and uh, what fueled it. And uh, other than what I've you know, kind of prompted you about this desire to see the world and have enriching experiences. So just to make sure that I don't put a nice revisionist history lens on this, um, none of my choices were, were clear cut. They mm. were things that I wanted, but sometimes it took me longer to realize what it was that I wanted. And it wasn't necessarily the thing that I was concentrating on. It was maybe something associated with it. So I would look at something and say, this is what I want. And it's not actually that. It was something else. So things like going to Penn State was not what I wanted. It was mm. my school. It was not the only university I got into. I got into a lot of very reputable universities, including at least one Ivy. Um, but it wasn't what my parents could afford. So it wasn't from lack of options of acceptance. It was from other, other factors that I ended up doing this thing. Now, in retrospect, knowing what I know now, that would be the choice that I made. Because going to a larger university like Penn State, having access to all the diverse resources that were there was something that I wouldn't have gotten at a smaller private institution. But I didn't know that. And I didn't know what I wanted until I was confronted with it. In the process of doing that, my plan, as you know, from when we were in middle school and high school together was to be a lawyer. And up until my last year in college, that's what I wanted to be. I had taken the LSATs. Wow. Yeah. And this is where I started answering your question. This wasn't a tangent. <laughs> I dropped it all and ended up going to Japan as part of the JET program. That was my backup choice. Just like wow. that was my backup choice. Right. It wasn't what I wanted, but it ended up being what I took and it worked out well. The law school thing, I started having a crisis of, is this what I want? Why do I want this? I've wanted this for 10 years, but I'm not sure why I really want to be a lawyer. I'm gonna take a year off. And I'm going to do something completely different and I'm going to get my head back on straight. And at that point in time, I fully intended to, you know, take my application, defer it, and then put it in for the following year. That never happened. Wow. So the transition to going to Japan, to seeing the world, to doing all those things is one of many steps in a path that I wish I were smart enough to tell you that I planned, but that would be an incredible, incredible lie. Well, it's such an important theme, right? Um, we uh, anticipate a certain direction or linearity. Mm -hmm. Is that even a word? Yes, it is. Thank you. <laughs> to our lives, but that's not necessarily how most lives are lived. And of course, the theme of this podcast is mining the nonlinear path. And so both of these experiences were clearly very nonlinear to you. Um, and, um, I remember visiting you when you were in Tokyo as a part of that jet program. And, um, uh, we didn't have, you know, this was 2002, maybe 2003, and we didn't have, um, cell phones that had worldwide coverage. And so we still had to deal with the messaging bits. And, um, you left a message that the power tool I was seeking was available. And we could either keep that as an inside joke, or we could explain. <laughs> I think it's funnier trying to make people wonder why we're talking about lawnmowers. So, you know, <laughs> let's leave that one be. Well said, brilliant. Well, and but I, I will point out that um, to your credit, amazing credit, you actually found a printed card that talked about this. Um, that was phenomenal. Like that was one of the best, uh, most thoughtful cards I've ever received from you. And you've been much more disciplined about sending cards than I have been. And so, yeah, that was kind of a, muted veiled apology um i love how hard you're working to make me look good i'm not that good so you know <laughs> well I, i'd also like to add like uh, don't expect any change in behavior imminently on my part so 
I remember when you were going through the JET program, and it might, I don't think it was when I visited you in Tokyo that we had this conversation, but at some point in this phase of your life, you said that uh, you wanted to visit every country. I have it wrong already. I think it was you were looking at the alphabet and go to every, go to a country with every, that began with every alphabet letter. Probably. I'd, I mean, I'd like to visit all of them. There are also a lot of places that technically are not their own country that are just off the beaten path that I'd love to get to. Um, gotcha. I did my honeymoon in Easter Island because that was a place that I'd always wanted to go to technically. Mm. Yeah, La Isla Pascua. Yeah. Nice. But yeah, it's, I think anyone who's traveled understands that being somewhere different makes you question things. It makes mm -hmm. you look at your own life, make you look at your own customs. And you know, the thing that people talk about all the time is how you learn better things, you learn different things. And that is absolutely true, but it also helps you realize the things that you do that are good and yeah. maybe better than other places. So there is a little bit of not just picking out the best of other places, but realizing what your culture, your place is doing right and appreciating that aspect of it. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Your choice to go on the JET program, while not um, your initial choice, had a big influence on how the rest of your life went because for a decade plus, you were considering law. You thought you'd take this break. You go into this uh, program where you, you're basically uh, an educator. And that became the new theme for your professional activity. So talk about coming back from the JET program to the US and um, what happened from there. The, well, not surprisingly, this because this will be a the nice theme to go along with your theme. My path back to the US was nonlinear. Uh, I finished, well, to go back a bit, the, the program was a one-year extendable program. My original plan was to go for a year, come back, put my life back to where I thought it would be. I renewed for the second year and I renewed for the third and final year. So my nice. my one-year stint became a three-year stint. And the Japanese school year ends, you know, around middle to end of, of July. So it's not exactly the greatest time for transition to be doing something else. So I decided to take a year off before heading back to the United States. Uh, and I have a very vivid memory of being on my one-way flight from Japan to Bangkok. And about an hour before the plane landed, realizing that I had no idea where I was going. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even know where I was going to sleep that night and it was dark outside. And that was the beginning of almost a full year of travel. I backpacked mostly through Southeast Asia, spent a little time in Australia. So on a boat that went to Africa and back, lasted about a month and a half. Met some great people on the boat from Peru, so spent a month in Peru. And then ended up back officially in the US and going to grad school. Wow, phenomenal. Um, that approach, being in your early to mid 20s and just saying, let's just see where life takes me. Um, you know, it's, there have been, we've been, we've known these people, but they just, who have done it, but they kind of get lost and it's almost a bit of an unraveling, but you maintained your focus and you knew that you were coming back, but this was really just kind of, um, a gap year of sorts. Um, yeah. And so it just gave you this wealth of experiences, but Tell us, are there any experiences that stand out from that year of travel that kind of affirmed your decision that, you know what, I'm going to go to grad school and I'm going to focus on education. I really know it now. I wouldn't say necessarily the travel itself was the, the most powerful factor. It was really the time in Japan. Um, mm -hmm. The education system there is so different from the education system in the U.S. And I feel very fortunate that Although my formal teacher training took place in the United States, I feel like I got three years of pre-training in Japan. Nice. Which, Great way to say it. Which you can never, never get in a classroom or in an institution in the U.S. And I was also lucky enough later to supplement that with a year in Finland. And we're 
looking at some of the, the finest educational systems in the world that have a lot of similarities and have a lot of differences. And the travel reaffirmed that I like being with people. I like having experiences. I like finding the joy and the value in different things. Mm. I am heart and soul a math person. I would never want to permanently teach anything other than mathematics. But at the same time, I love talking about all the other things that I'm interested in because the people that I teach, very few of them will go into mathematics. Right. But all of them will take something away from that classroom experience. And it doesn't have to be math for it to be a win for everyone involved. So well put. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, so you went to Duke for your master's. And after completing your master's, you taught in a secondary school for a while. I did. And this is where a lot of things start um, spiraling a little bit, circling a little bit to say that this thing that I did had an effect that I wasn't anticipating. One of the schools that I interviewed at was because I'm an alumna, an alumnus, excuse me, an alumnus of Duke had sent a, an email to the, the program saying, we're looking for a math teacher. Hmm. I was in, of course, North Carolina at the time. This teacher was living and working in Georgia. And it was about a six hour drive out to the school. I had no interest in moving to Georgia. I had no desire to live in Georgia, but it sounded interesting. And I thought, you know, I'm looking for a job. Uh, at the time I was looking at working in an international school or doing something back overseas again. And it turned out to be a fantastic fit. The interviews were great. And one of the aspects of the job that was particularly fun is I got to create my own classes and my own lessons and also support students in independent studies where they designed their own classes, designed their own curriculum. Wow. The day that I was visiting, the moment that I was there, there were a group of three students who were doing independent study in Japanese. Wow. And I'm interviewing for a math job. That's what they wanted. And these students were there. And I, I asked the, the person I was talking with, I said, do you mind if I go over and talk to them? And I sat down and we started talking in Japanese. Amazing. Um, this was back in the days when, you know, answering machines were still a thing. So it was a six hour drive back home. By the time I got back home, the job offer was on my answering machine. <laughs> Fantastic. Wow. Well, that doesn't surprise me one bit, but of course I'm subjective because I know how awesome and amazing you are. <laughs> well, that's great. So that's where you went to teach and uh, you were there for how long? I was there for three years. Yeah. Uh, I remember they, being a, a need for a calculus teacher. Uh, I had the, the training that they were looking for, the interest in doing it. It led to a lot of other opportunities. While I was there, it was, uh, there was a program with Georgia Tech where students who had finished calculus in high school but still were in high school looking to take one more math course before they graduated do a virtual class with Georgia Tech. So, I remember you got some press about that. Yeah, I, I supported that the, the first year that I was there because they needed someone to, to proctor the class. I wasn't teaching, but they needed someone to work the equipment and do the things. And after my first year, I had really turned around scores at the school. Uh, that's another long story, but they had been doing incredibly poorly and I got their pass rate up to 100% in the first year. Amazing. And I was contacted by the head of mathematics for the county who offered me an opportunity to teach using that same distance learning equipment, a school that was about 40 miles away on the other side of Atlanta. Uh, and that did lead to, to some press. I wrote a book chapter about it. Um, but really, it was an opportunity to to learn something. No one had ever done that. Hmm. No one to mentor me. They just said, look, that equipment that you've been watching, you think you could use that? <laughs> uh, I was young. I was dumb. I said, sure, why not? Amazing. That's phenomenal. But this is also the theme that's coming on is here was another opportunity that I wasn't looking for. This is not what I set out to do. I had no plan to do something that was going to result in 
you know, newspapers, um, interviews, book chapters, all that stuff, you know, opportunities present themselves. Yeah. And no, the, the sure. real secret of success is, you know, the time to strike is when the opportunity presents itself. So true. No, that's very well said. Um, you're approaching 30 at this point and you decided that you're not done with your educational pursuits. Tell us about that decision. Well, at, at that point, I'd actually passed 30. Um, so I was uh, just just past there. Um, gotcha. But the, the teaching was great. I had built a lot of things, the, the class, the, the math team that didn't really exist. And you know, by the time I left, I had one of the best math teams in the state, which was amazing. credit to the students. I had some wonderful, wonderful students. Um, but I was still looking for something a little more. And one of the things that I had also unfortunately learned is no matter how many experiences you have, no matter how much you know, we do live in a credentialing society. And the people who were getting listened to in education were not teachers. They were not the people who had the math team. Right. They were the people in positions of power. Right. They were the people with, with doctorates. And I decided that I wanted to do something as an advocate for teachers where I could take some of the things that I knew, add to them, do better, and start making more systemic changes than the changes I could make in the classroom. Very nice. So um, made the choice to pursue your PhD and um, share with us about um, that experience where you uh, ended up and uh, make sure to include that uh, you, the, uh, I was about to say love of your life. <laughs> um, uh, your, how you met your wife. I think that's a nice interweave and a great story, but uh, let, I'll let you take it from here. The PhD program I ended up enrolling in was at Stanford. Um, I realized in hindsight that I did things once again very unusually because I had my plan and I had my backup. My plan was go to Stanford. It was the only school I applied to. Oh, nice. um, everyone else thought I was pretty arrogant that just I applied to one school, but I wasn't <laughs> trying just to, to get something for the sake of it. I wanted to find something that was going to do what I needed it to do. That's right. Um, my backup was a, a Fulbright program, which I got accepted to. And interestingly, would have spent six months in India. Uh, and I ended up oh. having to turn that down to, to attend Stanford. Right. And that was you know, tough because that was something that I really wanted to do because travel was still a very big part of my life at the time. But the opportunity to be at Stanford to to work with the people that I did was not something that I could ever turn down. Sure. And, and this was a highly selective program. Yeah, the, the acceptance rate to the PhD program was under 5%. It was four in some, some decimal. Right, 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 right. But even just to, to really bring that home, I mean, like the number of first year PhD students who entered in your class, I believe was a single digit number. Uh, in the math program, there were two of us. In the total the school of education, a cohort was about 30 students. Okay. All right. Well, the, the math specific department is what uh, I recall and just being intensely impressed with how selective it was, but uh, no surprises that you were accepted there because um, I know you. <laughs> well, and the person that I ended up working with at the time was um, a Japanese woman who was interested in Japanese education. So here we well, start spiraling. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that was, it was also a good fit. Yeah, yeah. So share with us the Stanford experience. The Stanford experience, I will be honest, it had its ups and its downs. Um, people that I met there, I am still friends with today and stay in contact with as best I can, um, which I'm terrible at, so it's not very good. But it is also, as you alluded to, where I met my wife. We were in the same original cohort, so it's kind of fun, you know, when a class gets together, someone always says, I met my wife in undergrad, I met my wife with the masters. And I remember looking there and thinking to myself, I wonder I wonder who in this group is gonna end up together. It was me, it was me. <laughs> who that's so great. Oh, that's brilliant that that idea occurred to you. And there you were, that was gonna be you. 
It's fantastic. It's a week from tomorrow. My God, yeah. And uh, so blessed to have been there in attendance at the event. Uh, I always remember it being in the fall, but uh, I've kind of lost track of uh, that. So, uh, well, early congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate it. But the, to go back to your question, I'm sorry, because I get up on tangents. No, it's uh, brilliant. It's, it's free-flowing. It's exactly how it should be. Yeah, a, a PhD program is not is not that it's harder than other things. There are aspects of it that are hard, but there are aspects of anything that are hard, whether it's a PhD program or you know, a particular vocational training that you have to go through where you need a credential. There are hard things to everything. Um, a PhD program is emotionally grueling. There's a lot of stress, there's a lot of pressure. There are also wonderful moments of freedom and exploration, um, but it's, you know, they, they can show you studies and statistics on on grad students and how they deal with depression because it's it's a very common thing. Yeah. Uh, so I, I got a lot out of it. I have no regrets, but it was it was grueling. And I entered a PhD program thinking that I would probably get into a professorial role because that's where you can start using that experience and really start shaping things. Um, people in power listen to college professors and researchers who share their opinions and that was something that i wanted to be able to do was say here are the things that i know let's make these things happen let's make things better for kids let's make things better for teachers uh, i left not wanting to be in that field you didn't want to stay in academia it was not where i wanted to be yeah. i loved the teaching aspect the research wasn't my cup of tea gotcha and did you contemplate policy work at any point a little bit. Uh, unfortunately, the the particular program that I was in was in teacher teacher education. Mm -hmm. gotcha. so it wasn't something where I had a lot of exposure to policy. There were different branches in education that I could have gone along to do that, but I didn't pursue them. Okay. So that wasn't really something that was open to me. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So um, you graduate Stanford contemporaneously with your wife. I know that you took some time during the process. So let's backtrack on that one. She graduated before I did. But like six months. Uh, she graduated a full year before I did. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Was it really a full year? There, it would have been a full year, yeah. Okay. Um, but you took some time at certain points during your doctoral studies to uh, pursue other interests, do some traveling. I did. I actually ended up doing a lot of non-linear things in the program. And it was one of the reasons I ended up having to change advisors part of the way through my program because my advisor didn't like the choices <laughs> I was making. So when you're in... If only parents could be like advisors. <laughs> but that's for me, not for you. <laughs> yeah, that could go down you have well. amazing parents. Hey, mom and dad, hope you're listening. <laughs> so after I had finished teaching and was in the, the, the PhD program, I still had that experience I was talking about with the, the distance learning. I had an opportunity to write a book chapter. So this is pretty unusual that a first year student is going to be publishing a book chapter. It's usually a couple of years into the program, co-authoring with your advisor, co-authoring with someone else. So I had something that was going pretty well. And at that time, the Fulbright program had just begun a new branch called the Fulbright Distinguished Award in Teaching. Um, I believe it's now the Fulbright Distinguished Teaching Award. And I like to take credit for that name change because I started referring to it as FDAP. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't think they really liked how I was pronouncing the acronym. Um, so it stopped being the Fulbright Distinguished Award in Teaching. Uh, but it was the first year of the program, and it was just an opportunity to, to go somewhere and to spend time learning something different. So I was in the first cohort of, of teachers to do that. I was actually the first one to leave. So I, I claim that I am the first person to have done it. It's, it's a little dubious, but I'm going to take it. I think you should. 
And it paid for six months in Finland where I was doing research and also working in a, um, excuse me, in a bilingual elementary school. Uh, and I was able to apply for another grant while I was there uh, through a Finnish organization so I could finish out the, the school year. Amazing. Yeah. So, and uh, puns intended on the finishing the Finnish school year. Very much so. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, another trait uh, that I've always loved about you is just uh, your willingness to be uh, you're like your lack of fear around saying the things that um, are, are are funny, are thought provoking. Um, whereas I've always shown a, a, a timidity around um, you know uh, poking the bear or being uh, you know challenging to authoritarianism or the establishment uh, the, um the but you're say again the word that you're looking for is tactful you've done that <laughs> i don't no it was fear um it's because i i truly honor you know your proclamations of fdat in order for them to change it <laughs> fine i don't think that that was actually what did it but again i like to think that i I think we should go with this. I think we should say that it was you that, that made that change happen. Well, your um, affinity towards these other educational systems and this desire to be in these settings because, uh, I mean, you were drawn intellectually to them. So you wanted to go back to Finland, understand more. I mean, it's informed so much of your thinking, the value you can add. And so I'm, I'm glad you changed advisors and didn't stick with the one who was being a bit myopic and uh, went to one that could appreciate what it is that you were bringing to the equation and that this was a time and, you know, the Fulbright organization was one with whom you had uh, a good rapport. You had done well with them. You had to put uh, them on the back burner in order to attend Stanford and, you know, it should have been recognized and acknowledged and, um, but well done to kind of maintain all of those relationships in a very positive, strong way. Yeah. One of the other themes that I, I very much feel like I, I need to share is I've been very lucky that even when things don't work out, there is always an escape hatch. So sometimes the things that I, I view as not working out, you know, I didn't go to the university I wanted. I didn't do the job that I wanted. I didn't get the advisor that I wanted. I ended up at the school that I needed to be at. I ended up with the job at the place that I really should have been at. And my second advisor was amazing. She was everything that I needed. She was supportive. And she led me to do things that I wanted to do, but maybe didn't even realize that I wanted to do. She That's was fantastic. more concerned about me as my advisor than you know what I was publishing or what I could do for her. So, that's um, superb. Shelly Goldman, thank you. She was fantastic. Yeah, nice shout out. That's great. I love it when that happens on the show. Um, it's, it's so important. Um, it reminds me of the Rolling Stones song, of course. When you don't get what you want, you get what you need. So I was thinking sympathy for the devil, but yeah. <laughs> I knew where you were I will never be able to match your quick quips like that. That was so brilliantly done. Like you can switch your synapses firing in such a short time frame, and I'm still coasting on, you know, thinking of Mick Jagger and all this other stuff. So kudos. Uh, well, and I highlight that because we spent a fair amount of our youth together listening to records and tapes, and that was a big thing. And your parents had this amazing collection. So any cultural knowledge I have of music from even the 50s, 50s, 60s, and 70s are all because of you and your family. So my shout out as well. Thank you, dad and mom building such a great collection even just happened within the last two weeks that i forget what it was and i meant to message you that something came up with uh, referencing the night chicago died <laughs> just brought back a lot of good memories so yeah yeah for sure oh, gosh 
Well, I, so much of what I knew about the world outside of what I could read in a textbook came from my time at your home growing up. I would say so, reverse was true in reverse. I learned a lot from your family. Um, I did a lot more stupid things as a result of my being friends with you than I would have otherwise. <laughs> There was a contribution, may not be very, you know, significant, but that was a contribution. Um, I'd like to explain to people that you have experience taking Indian hot chilies, putting them on your tongue, burning, and then licking salt and putting it on your tongue. Because why? Because it hurt more. And that's why we did it, because we were dumb. Well, the stupidity was you're supposed to put the salt on first and then put the chilies on, because the salt has a tendency to break the uh, uh, layers on the tongue so that you experience the chilies more. But, you know, we had to grow wiser and older in order to, to know that. Yeah. Well, fortunately, there was no moderation, so there was salt, pepper, salt, pepper, salt. So it, it worked out. Well, there was a third element in there. It was popcorn, wasn't it? But that was also a vehicle for the salt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've forgotten about the popcorn. <laughs> well, and that, uh, you know, well, we haven't really done this, but later, I mean, together we haven't done it, but later just separately that was replaced with the whole tequila, lime, salt, I'm doing these hand gestures as if I can actually recall the sequence, but I'm just going to leave it at that. Chevy Chase taught us it well in Caddyshack. Yeah. Um, one of the best honors I've ever had in my life was you mentioning me specifically in the dedication of your doctoral thesis. Um, I have that on PDF and I look at that regularly. Um, I can't thank you enough. That was the, one of the most thoughtful gestures that anyone's ever extended to me. And uh, its value has been cherished and remains so significant. So thank you, brother. We learned how to do research together. <laughs> Well, wow, hadn't framed it or thought about it that way. So that's, yeah. I appreciate that. That's really phenomenal. So um, you graduate uh, with your doctorate a year after your, um, at the time, mm -hmm. fiance or not yet? Um, let's see. Like graduated in June and then we got married in October. All right. So certainly fiance, we can say. Yeah. Um, and so uh, you had already started residing in Georgia pre-graduation. So along with the, the nonlinear, you, you don't go into grad school and take a year off after your first year because no one does that except me. Um, so I did my, my first year of grad school that I left for a year to... Uh, to do the Fulbright in Finland. Also took off about two or three months after that to backpack through Europe. Um, although not the part that most people do, I went down the, uh, the Eastern part of Europe. Eastern Europe, yeah. What I still refer you to- You in Croatia? Country. Never made it to Croatia. That was actually a little oh. far west. I was over Ukraine, Belarus, Bulgaria. Gotcha. Kosovo for a little bit. Right, 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 right. That's what I still refer to as my Iron Curtain holiday. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> oh, mom and dad went to Croatia recently. That's what I'm yeah. thinking about. Yeah. They, they very much enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, so I did, did the, the Fulbright, came back, did a couple more years in the PhD program. And the way it typically works, the beginning of your last year in a PhD program, which for me would have been, it was going to be around 2014 when I was graduating, which is when my wife graduated, you start going on the job hunt. So you start putting out applications, you start looking at job openings, because when you're looking particularly for professorial positions or something like that, you know, what's open is what's open. That's right. Yeah. Um, and at that time, there were two other math PhD students who were going to be graduating at the same time. And we all decided to work together collaboratively 
and help each other look for jobs, figure out which ones we were all interested in, figure out which ones one person might be interested in. So we were trying to help each other match to what we thought would be a good fit. And I woke up one morning to find two emails, uh, one from each of those people I was working with saying, hey, Ben, we found a job that we think is really good for you. And it was a non-professorial job. It was with the college board. They were mm -hmm. looking for someone to take charge of the AP Calculus program. Right. It ended up being AP Calculus as well as AP Statistics. Uh, but Calculus was what they were advertising for. And went out, did the interview, did a second interview. They offered me the job and wanted me to start right away. Wow. Which I couldn't do because I was in the process of finishing up the PhD. Um, I was also adjuncting at uh, a community college and at a university. Right. So, well, I can't really do that. Can we, can we figure out a different way to make this work? And that sort of sidetracked all the dissertation writing and everything else. So I once again took off a year, uh, actually a little more than a year to, to work. So it would have been yeah, a year and a half that I was working while simultaneously writing my dissertation and then graduated. Amazing. Yeah, again, nonlinear. Yep, well, of course, yeah. Um, but it, it, it all works out somehow, magically, mysteriously. Yeah. It was at another time. great opportunity. Uh, at the time, um, College Board had just started redesigning courses, and this is now old news because most of these things were finished several years ago. But it was a new thing at the time, and they needed someone to redesign the AP Calculus curriculum. They were looking for someone who had an academic background, preferably a PhD, check. Someone who had taught AP Calculus, there's Georgia, check. Uh, someone who had experience teaching AP at high school, check. Someone who had taught college calculus, that's what I was doing when I was adjuncting, as well as some other classes, check. So I, I pretty much hit everything they were looking for. Um, right. And uh, from what I understand, after I did the interview, it was very much like the teaching interview. They they decided that 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 I was a good fit for it. Nice, nice. And you've been in that role now for six years. I was in that role for about four years. Uh, All right, you had a shift, yeah. Uh, but I I was with College Board in that role for about four years. Redesigned calculus, did a lot of work with statistics. Um, ended up leaving that because there was an opportunity with another group that I went into for about a year, year and a half. Uh, but honestly, I missed the calculus and then I left College Board to work for ETS, uh, right. Educational Testing Services, and now I design the AP Calculus exam. So right. just the, instead of being on the curriculum and instruction side of things, now I'm more on the assessment side of things. Right, right, right. right. Well, um, what do you, what does the future hold for you? Do you enjoy this uh, aspect of being on the uh, design side of, of testing? And um, uh, I mean, you've become a father in the process to amazing boys um, who are both under the age of four. So it's uh, a challenging time. And so uh, there doesn't leave a lot of room for, for travel, but uh, the travel piece is what just really stands out. I mean, COVID notwithstanding, uh, the travel piece is what really percolates to the top as being um, something that um, you haven't really engaged in much. That's unfortunately been very true. You are 100% correct on that, that the, the challenge sometimes of working a very active job is that it's, it doesn't make it easy to leave. You are you are needed in the things that you do and there are deadlines that can't be pushed. Uh, so the travel hasn't been happening as much as I would have liked. We were supposed to go to Japan this fall, um, but COVID unfortunately derailed that plan. But we're hoping as the boys get a little older, uh, we'll take a trip here, we'll take a trip there. And of course, as they get older and are able to do the travel as well, we'd love to take them overseas and start that process much earlier than I started. You had the experience of being born outside the US and traveled a lot when you were young. I didn't really leave the country in any meaningful way um, until I was in college. Yeah, yeah. 
No, I think that international exposure will be uh, amazing um, for the kids. And both you and your wife have spent a significant amount of time overseas. She's done some fabulous work in, in Bangladesh, uh, I recall. And um, so, uh, you know, these are two very lucky boys to have such bright parents, uh, worldly parents, and uh, who are uh, present as well. So they will uh, give uh, a great uh, backdrop for them. Um, we'll be calling you at various points in the future to remind them how lucky they are. So please, you know, keep no checking. Absolutely. I'll, I will. We can start a whole text campaign that just shows up every 21 days or so in their phones once they get their phones. Um, and so we'll just, you know, fully automate it. Yep. So I was thinking about it. We had talked a little before we were, um, we had this interview about the whole nonlinear paths. And I was thinking about how I got to where I am and what were some of the fundamental things. And it dawns on me that the, the ballroom dancing is something that's had very discernible effects at various points throughout my life that it just propelled me into something because it was a conversation starter or mm. it was a skill. And it's also the most wonderful story of how stupid I am and how that stupidity paid off in space because I didn't have to be stupid on one level. I had to be stupid on multiple levels. For the <laughs> Well, and I, I actually, I, I should have recalled that because when I came for your graduation from college, I drove specifically to the home of Chuck and Betsy, who were a couple that you had gotten very close with, to through ballroom dancing. Yes. And incidentally, they were one of the couples that I was very close with, and they had lived and taught in Japan for four years. Amazing. They were also instrumental in my making the choice to go to Japan. Mm -hmm. um, so here's here's a fun story for you. This is a good good tidbit for anyone who thinks, you know, you have to do things the right way. You have to do things the smart way. Here's how you can be a complete and utter idiot and come out on top. So as I mentioned before, going to Penn State wasn't exactly where I wanted to be. It wasn't my top choice. And to be honest, I was very disappointed when I went there. Um, and I, I might even say that disappointed is not strong enough of a word. I was very upset. I wow. felt okay. worked hard to go somewhere better. Um, I had a, a fair dose of arrogance at that time as well. I, I felt like I deserved better. Wow. Yeah. I mean, also, I want to point out, you were in the honors program, which is exceptionally selective. I mean, getting into Penn State is one thing, but being accepted to the honors program is a, just a whole other level of exclusivity. Had I been mature enough to appreciate that, that would have been correct. I was not mature enough to appreciate that. I am now, and I was mm -hmm. very fortunate to have that opportunity. Um, but I was bitter. Penn State was where a lot of our graduating class went. It was yeah. the state school and people who had not worked as hard as I had um, or accomplished the things that I had were going to the same place. Right, and right. I, felt, um, I felt like I got hosed. Uh, I really just appreciate your honesty here and your candor, yeah. Ben, this is huge. So I made myself a promise when I got there that I would not hang out with my friends from high school. I wanted a fresh mm. start. I wanted to do things a different way. The short version of the story was my first roommate was a sophomore. So while everyone else was off with their roommates, exploring campus, doing things, my roommate shows up late, says hi, and then goes off to hang out with his friends. So I've been alone for a couple of days waiting for my roommate to show up. And then I don't have anyone to talk to. So I was bitter. I was angry. I was lonely. And within a couple of weeks, uh, probably even within one week of making that promise not to hang out with friends, I started hanging out with one of my friends from high school. The fact that her roommate was smoking hot was a complete and utter coincidence. That had nothing <laughs> to do with it. it was just one of those, you know, totally, you know, random things. Um, and also completely random that that really hot roommate wanted to go ballroom dancing. Um, uh -huh. So of course, you know, me with, um, not even being able to identify which of my two feet is left. Um, I said, sure, I'll go. And I had no interest in going. 
So I showed up and she didn't. Oh. And it was a horrendous experience. I had no coordination whatsoever. But the second level of stupidity is that I'm incredibly stubborn. So I went back again the next week um, because I wanted to figure out what was going on and I wanted to, to prove to myself that I could do it. It was amazing. Sort of getting over all the anger and the frustration, the things that I was feeling. And it probably took me a solid six months to start enjoying it. <laughs> wow. You kept taking yourself there for six months on a weekly basis until you... Wow. Wow. Amazing. But I ended up meeting some fantastic people. I ended up having a lot of fun, learned a lot of good things. And I was in college. I started in 95. Um, for those of you who um, have been around long enough, you may remember around 1997, 1998 was when that ad came out with Gap, where people were swing dancing. And suddenly swing dancing became really cool. Well, guess who'd been doing swing dancing for about two or three years at that point? Um, and suddenly I was teaching in a nightclub. Um, I was doing dance performances. I was advertising for a concert. I got to meet uh, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. I got to meet Brian Setzer when he came to play. Um, so Amazing. Really kind of well, and, and dur during that time, you visited me in New York and we went to a... Swing club. We a couple of bars. not supposed to mention that. <laughs> I didn't say swingers club. I said swing club. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's finally, it only took me uh, 67 minutes, but I got you to laugh. <laughs> I've been chuckling all through. Well, that's right. The, the, the chuckle is always a complimentary chuckle of, oh, it's a, like it's like a pat on the head for me. Like, oh, he's trying. That's cute. Um, but the actual laugh, that's like, okay, I've worked towards that. I've earned, I like, I've, I was really trying to get that. So I'm glad. Thank you. That, that's one for you to see. <laughs> well, uh, so glad you brought up the um, ballroom the, dancing. The, the reason I bring up the story is... I've been very blessed with the opportunities that I've had and the things that I've been through. Neither of us grew up impoverished by any sense of the imagination, but neither of us grew up in incredibly advantaged. A lot of the things that we got, we had to work for. And it's very easy to paint a story of someone who has worked hard and had success. And, you know, sometimes we gloss over the failures, we gloss over the stupidities, we gloss over the indecision. My life has been amazing with the things that I've been able to do and I've been able to experience, it has been racked by indecision. It has been ups, it has been downs. And I could paint a very pretty picture of you know, grad school and Stanford and PhDs and Fulbrights and all these other wonderful things. And it would be a very nice picture, but it misses all the different aspects that go into a journey that isn't always linear. It's not even always planned. And sometimes it's just about embracing the things that you have the opportunity to do and being okay with what you're good at, what you're not good at, and doing what you like. 100%, uh, Ben. And I think that um, if we were to peel back the onion, uh, proverbially, as you have done here, um, for most people who have that seemingly glossed over amazing succession of successes, we'd find a very similar backdrop. It's not always easy. It's not always rosy. Um, but uh, I think what's important is to focus on the fact that you created this. And I was about to focus on two aspects of your persona, which have become very popular to talk about nowadays and books are being written about it, but um, you really personified resilience and grit. You called it stubbornness, but I, you know, it, it was grit. You, you took the situations that were presented to you and um, you embraced them and then maybe it didn't happen like a light switch. It took some time, but you got to a point where you said, well, here's what's going on. I'm going to make the best of it I can. I'm going to go have these unique new experiences. And all of those have been phenomenal for you. 
And so I, I really was going to focus on those two of resilience and grit, but you've thrown a third one in there, which is gratitude. Gratitude and sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, well, that certainly helps getting us uh, through all these uh, ups and downs. Um, but you've lived uh, a really an exemplary life and it's almost like your character was really shown when you didn't get the things you wanted. I, I whined like a small child at times, but I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> There's but, the humor bit again, just in case. That's not part of character we wanted to talk about. <laughs> okay. This is where we cut to the B-roll and I show the footage of you doing that. Um, no, but I, I will put a image of the wall that you broke or, or, or put a hole in with your foot. No, I'm teasing. I won't do that. Um, <laughs> that wall doesn't exist anymore. It's now bookshelves. That wall's gone. <laughs> you were just precocious. <laughs> You're like, mom and dad, you don't need this wall anymore. Let me help you out. It's not load bearing. Okay, here we go. <laughs> well, Ben, this has been phenomenal. Thank you for this amazing walk back memory lane. I feel like, um, again, like as I said at the outset, it's you're one of the, probably the only person in the world. You really are the only person in the world where your reliving your experiences makes me feel like I'm reliving a part of my life as well because I was either witness to or hearing about or championing or uh, just involved in some way uh, with all these events in your life and uh, I'm so thankful to you um, for uh, um, for us staying in touch and, and having this and, important role in uh, in each other's lives very much agree you've been there through it all <laughs> it's really a position of great privilege that i cherish so many thanks to your brother you as well sir <laughs> <laughs>